Welcome to Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Henrika Mo. Henny is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Southern California, where she directs the Myosin Development Lab. Henny's primary research focus lies in children's understanding of perspectives and their ability to engage in joint attention. She studies how infants and young children come to understand the world and the role that others play in introducing them to the world. Her studies are informed by insights from philosophy of mind, education, and anthropology. In this episode, we discuss Henny's research on theory of mind, young children's perspective taking, especially when other people's beliefs clash with their own beliefs or with reality, and how the concept of experiential record plays an important role in children's ability to understand other people's beliefs. Henny also shared the lab's future directions and some exciting upcoming projects. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you. Um, before we dive into science, would you mind giving our audience a brief introduction of your lab? What are some of the research topics that your lab is interested in studying? Of course, yeah. Thank you, Bella. So USC, and we study the first years of a child's life with regards to the child's social cognitive development. So some of the key questions that we're interested in and pursuing empirically in our lab are when and how does a child come to learn from other people and how does she do that? When and how do children learn that other people may have different perspectives from the child herself? And when and how do kids understand that others have beliefs, desires, intentions that differ from her own Some other questions that we have become quite interested in are, for example, how does a child comprehend the act of teaching? What does a young child think it means to teach? So I think for a long time, we have looked at children just as learners and as beneficiaries of pedagogy and teaching, but we don't yet know all that much about how a child cognitively represents or understands teaching and how she things teaching should be done or accomplished. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, could you share some recent projects that the lab has been working on with us? Yes, definitely. So one main project that we're pursuing asks about the scope and limits of young children's theory of mind capacities. Here, we're mainly interested in children under the age of four. This is because research has long shown that four is a, a kind of threshold age. Children four and older have a pretty good grasp of others' mental states, including their beliefs and assumptions, expectations, and so on. But children under the age of four seem to lack a crucial part, at least, of that understanding. And what we're trying to do with innovative methods is to scope out what a two-year-old and a three-year-old understands about other people's minds and where they're coming from, essentially. And something that we're finding is that if you move away from language, you can detect 
by studying children's facial expressions and bodily expressions that you can actually see that there is a good amount of implicit understanding in the child that the child has an early emerging implicit grasp of what is going on in others. That is one of, one of the main projects that we're pursuing. In another project, we're looking at children's development of what we call pedagogical cognition. So what is their cognition and their understanding of pedagogy and the role of the learner and the role of the teacher in getting knowledge across from one agent to another? So here we're um, looking at children's capacity to teach other kids. We're finding that children are not only good at learning, actually, but they're also good in the reverse role of the teacher. They have quite a well-developed understanding of what teaching entails and what the goal of teaching is, namely to expand the learner's knowledge. And we know that because when we place young kids in the role of teachers, we find that they are quite selective in a good way in what they teach. So for example, they will hone in on what is true rather than false information. They deliberately choose um, general information over specific information, which would be a lot less useful than general information. And they also prefer to convey what is objectively true and not just what is subjectively preferred or a subjective preference. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, I do have some follow-up questions. So uh, in the first project you mentioned, um, so you mentioned theory of mind. And for our audience who are not super familiar with this concept, could you uh, talk about what theory of mind is? Yes, of course. Um, so the uh, term theory of mind is almost 50 years old now. It was introduced by Primek and Woodruff who asked in 1978 whether the chimpanzee has the theory of mind. And now almost 50 years later, this question hasn't uh, yet fully been answered. But what we do think is that the chimpanzee does not have the kind of theory of mind that we have and develop early in age as humans. But this, of course, hasn't yet answered your question of what it is to have a theory of mind. Basically, what this is about is the ability to predict and explain behavior based on other people's mental states. And mental states are, for example, what they want, what they desire, what mm -hmm. they hope, what they fear, but also what they uh, believe or assume, expect. Mm -hmm. And these um, latter uh, mental states, believe, uh, expect, and so on, those are particularly interesting, but also tricky to acquire um, for young children or an understanding of these mental states is difficult to acquire because they have uh, what we call a mind-to-world direction of fit. What that means is that these mental states have a certain um, task to fulfill. They have to represent the world as it actually is. And that's not the case for you know hopes or, or desires. You can say that a desire might be a little bit bizarre or hope might be unrealistic or unattainable. Mm -hmm. Like if I hope for oranges to drop from the sky now, that's not going to happen. Or if I desire, you know, like um, neon green leather boots, then other people might find that a strange desire to have. But mm -hmm. unlike beliefs or assumptions, 
these desires and hopes cannot be argued to be false. They're not false because right. it's not like they conflict with reality, but that's what can happen with beliefs that we simply fail to accurately represent the world with our beliefs and assumptions. And that's something that's really difficult for young kids to understand mm-hmm. that people might actually misrepresent the world. Right, right. Um, could you give us an example of how the theory of mind is usually studied? Yeah, so in the classic way of studying this, the child is asked a number of questions. So the child is first shown a short story. In the story, we have a protagonist, um, for example, with the name of Maxi, and he puts uh, his chocolate bar into, say, the fridge. Then he goes out to play. And while he's gone, his mother moves the chocolate bar from the fridge to a cabinet. Now Maxi comes back and the child is simply asked the question, where is Maxi going to look for his chocolate? You can also ask an alternative question and ask, where does he think the chocolate is? Interestingly, the way you pose the question really does not matter to the result. Mm-hmm. Children under age four will predict that Maxi is going to look for the chocolate where it really is, but that's not where he would be looking because he didn't see the transfer. So he looks, right. of course, for the chocolate where he believes it to be, and that's the outdated location. So it doesn't matter whether you ask the action or the uh, thinking question, so which is the mental state question, the outcome is identical. And again, this is kind of the standard way in which this was measured for mm-hmm. decades, really. In the last uh, maybe almost two decades, we have observed a number of, or people have come up with a number of alternative methods that make the task quite a bit easier for young children. Mm-hmm. A lot of these methods do away with language in some ways, at least in the sense that children don't have to verbally respond, uh, or give a verbal answer. Right. Sometimes language still still plays quite a bit of a role um, because there's some kind of story that is still narrated to the child. But in other cases, they might just watch events happening and those events are either um, show an agent acting in sync with what she previously observed or they show an action by an agent that is out of step with what you previously observed. And then the question is whether children notice a difference, whether they perceive the events differently and look longer at one or the other event. There's also action-based measures. And something that we have recently come up with in our lab is to exploit the fact that there's actually a strong affective dimension to having a false belief and also to witnessing others act on false beliefs. So if Maxi comes back and fails to find his chocolate in the fridge, he will be rather disappointed and at right. the least will be surprised. Mm-hmm. And nobody has really exploited this, this fact about false beliefs, that they are disappointing and they, they lead to surprise. So this is the sort of the emotional consequences of being wrong or being mistaken. And that's where we come into the picture. And we have started to record children's facial expressions as they observe somebody act on unexpected reality. Essentially, we have looked for signs that children have suspense, that they are Mm -hmm. susceptible to suspense. I think we're all familiar with the concept of suspense. Hitchcock, as we know, was a master of creating suspense. And how did did he do that? He did that by way of supplying 
an audience with what we might call foreknowledge, knowledge of what is going to happen. But the protagonist mm -hmm. in the story crucially lacks that knowledge and will stumble into a situation with a false understanding of it. And the question is simply, does the audience anticipate the mistake that the protagonist is going to make? Or does the audience anticipate that the protagonist is running into a problem because he misrepresents reality as it is? And we find that children at the tender age of two and three years old express that very understanding. They are susceptible to suspense. So they will show lip bites, furrow their brows, mm -hmm. open their mouths suddenly or suddenly shut their mouths or make a fist in the air or clench mm -hmm. in their chair and show similar responses when they witness that an agent is approaching a situation he or she is not expecting. Wow, that is really interesting. And yeah, you were right. I've never really thought about um, what how the young children are going to react when they find out what they're expecting is not in the original location. We're so worried about studying. Would they be able to predict or realize that the object is no longer there, but we never really looked at their reaction afterwards? So that's really interesting. Um, so you mentioned this, um, prior knowledge, um, uh, or the concept of experiential record. I believe that's the phrase that you use in your paper. Um, by the way, to our audience, this paper is currently under review, so it will be out very soon. And then if you're interested in reading the paper, uh, feel free to, um, check out Henny's website. Um, so the concept of experiential record, what does it mean and why is it important in uh, studying the theory of mind? Yeah, thank you for the question. It was recently proposed by researchers Johannes Lusa and Josef Perna that experiential records might be key uh, for infants' theory of mind. What they're arguing is that infants don't really have a full grasp of beliefs but they do build so-called experiential records. What is that? An experiential record is simply a record that the child possesses of another person's experiences. So for example, let's assume that a child and her parent are in a room together and they play with a bunch of toys and they leave them on the floor. Now the adult, the parent leaves and in the child's presence, somebody um, moves the toys from the floor into a cabinet or into um, some kind of container. And now the parent returns and wants to keep playing with the child. What an infant will understand is that the parent missed this crucial event of the object being moved while she was gone. And she will be able to update her knowledge by way of pointing to the, to the toys, by way of informing the parent where the things now are. And this is what it means to have an experiential record. And what we find in our work at is that this is crucially important. Children under age four really only understand what another is up to, what another person is going to do, and how she will respond to a situation if they were previously able to track her perspective on an event and to basically record her prior experiences with the relevant objects of the scene or in the situation. This implies that they can't really understand how a person generally 
will be responding to a situation. What do I mean by that? One of the classic standard false belief tasks or classic stereos double. <laughs> one, of the, one of the standard false belief tasks works in the following way. You show a young child a Smarties pouch or for our American audience, I, I think it's <laughs> an M&M yeah. pouch. And then you simply ask the child, okay, so what do you think is in here? And then children say M&Ms. Hopefully mm-hmm. they say that. Hopefully they're familiar with that, but you can also use a different kind of container and objects, for example, mm-hmm. goldfish crackers or what have you. And then um, you show the child something surprising. You open up the box and you show that the M&M's pouch contains crayons or hairpins. And you shut the box again and you ask the child, okay, initially when you first looked at this, what did you think is in here? Or when I just asked you what's in here, what did you say is in here? And Interestingly, kids younger than age four cannot recall their prior false belief of the content. They will simply say, crayons, I always knew that there were crayons in here. So they can't recall that they had a false assumption about the content of this box. And here's how the idea of the experiential record comes in. So if you require experiential records, which we think young kids do, then you need prior, need to see prior events unfolding. An event, for example, in which a person leaves Smarties in a box and then leaves. And then while she's gone, the Smarties or M&Ms in the box are being replaced with something different like crayons. And now the person comes back. Under these, situ- under these circumstances, the child should very well be able to understand that the agent has a false expectation mm-hmm. and a false assumption of what's in the box. But this is a different situation because here the child has built an experiential record, a record of what the other just previously witnessed and experienced. And that's not the case in the standard version of the task where the child is simply shown the conventional container, such as the M&M's box, and is then asked, okay, if Lucy comes in right now, what does she think is in the box? Mm -hmm. In this case, there is no record of a prior experience that Lucy had some kind of interaction with the box and its content that would allow the child to build up a specific expectation of what the person thinks she will encounter when she returns. I see. That's really interesting. And um, earlier you mentioned So for children under the age of four, when you ask them uh, what's in the box when they're actually crayons, and then they'll say, yeah, I've always thought it's crayons. And they wouldn't basically admit that they once thought there were M&Ms in there. Is that right? Did I understand it correctly? Or was it a different scenario? Yeah. So the test question is not uh, what's in there, because then the correct answer to that would always be crayons. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the the test question is what do you th- what did you think is in here when you first mm-hmm. saw this okay. or alternatively what does another person so if Bella walks into the room right now what will she think is in here or what will she expect in here I see and so it looks like perhaps you can only build records of experiences for other people. Um, this sounds strange, but otherwise, I guess it's not intelligible why 
the child under age four should not be able to retrieve her own uh, experience that she just had just a minute ago mm-hmm. of having looked at looked at the container and thought that there were smarties in there. But perhaps that's not so much an experience. It's just a mental state, but not really mm. like a perception yeah. of experience. Right. That is fascinating because I think is actually really surprising to to hear that. Yeah. I mean, that makes me wonder what makes the age of four such a turning point. What's happening before the age of four that's causing this lack of ability to understand other people's belief. And I'm also wondering if the child receives some kind of teaching or explanation from parents or teachers Um, demonstrating that there could be a conflict between their own beliefs and other people's beliefs, would they be able to understand this concept before the age of four? This is really kind of the million dollar question (laughs) that we all grapple with. Why four and not earlier or later? And what is it that changes? Of course, we do have to remember there's quite a little, quite a little bit of interpersonal, uh, inter-individual variation in the data. Some children Mm -hmm. do get it by age three and a half and others are only there at around four and a half or up to five even. So we do have to remember that. We think that both maturational components, but also Mm -hmm. certain experiences are important. And the two together in in tandem must somehow explain the the result. Maturational, Maturational factors we think are in play because even if you give a three-year-old, say, somebody who just turned three, some social experiences that we think are really key involving a lot of conversations about situations like that where a person doesn't know something that's relevant to her actions Mm -hmm. or where two people perceive the same scene in different ways and maybe in conflicting ways and you make that a point of discussion with children, giving them those experiences will not change the fact that the three-year-old does not yet understand beliefs and we can somehow from the outside instill that understanding in somebody who is too young, which would be somebody who just turned three. However, those experiences I just mentioned, including discussing cases in which perspectives conflict, what we sometimes call engaging in perspective shifting discourse. For Mm -hmm. example, if I say, well, Bella believes that the chocolate is still there in the fridge, but really it's now here, it's in the cabinet, isn't it? But she didn't see that, she didn't witness it. So what is she now going to think where it is? So having these kinds of discussions and engaging children in this sort of discourse about Mm -hmm. conflicts between perspectives and conflicts between perspective and we a particular perspective and reality we think are key but they're only going to make a difference given a certain maturational stage and prior to that if the maturation is not there these experiences are simply going to be futile yeah i see okay that makes total sense yeah i think that's mainly that's mainly it but um yeah People have grappled really with this question and several labs have tried to devise training studies to see Mm -hmm. what kinds of experiences or interactions using language, using certain cooperative forms of 
play or engagement with an object or a scene make make the difference. And interestingly, most training studies have not been very effective in bringing the age significantly down. So um, in most training studies, I think we find that most training studies have yielded negative data and shown that it's not really possible to significantly. So, yeah, that is interesting. Thank you so much for this discussion. <laughs> yeah, I think actually, so there was one study in which this kind of perspective shifting discourse was used. So, for example, we would say to children, oh, look, this object really at first sight, it looks like a pin, but then look at it more closely. Oh, it's actually like an insect or something mm-hmm. like that. So um, these kinds of um, interactions in which the clash in perspectives is really pointed out to the child do seem to make some difference, but I think the difference is relatively small and it hits a limit when it encounters the necessary level of maturation that the, that the child needs. So you can't significantly change the timeline and you can't mm-hmm. really get uh, a two and a half year old or a young three year old to suddenly understand beliefs just by way of engaging them in certain kinds of interactions. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Um, and then also there's a, a concept that you mentioned in your paper called the dual system of mind reading. So mm-hmm. this phrase sounds really interesting. Could you uh, explain uh, more about this concept to us? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is a quite impactful theory that has been proposed. It was proposed by Ian Appley and Stephen Butterfield. And what they're saying is that humans are equipped with two systems that help them read the minds of other people, if you will. Mm -hmm. System one and system two. And system one is a system that humans allegedly share with other animals, at least certain other animals, such as other primates, but also certain species of bird, um, certain bird species that have proven to be quite clever when it comes to knowing what other birds, what con specifics of theirs witnessed and did not witness. So for example, certain birds will recache their foods when they notice that another bird witnessed where they first cached the food. So they will mm-hmm. go retrieve it again and hide it elsewhere and things of that sort. So allegedly system one is shared with these other animals and it's it's really efficient, but it is inflexible. So mm-hmm. what that means is it allows you to do certain things, but in a rigid manner. And it's very, what you can do is rather limited. So um, for instance, humans and other apes are able to track what the conspecific or what another agent saw and did not see. And it also allows them to kind of compute what that other agent is going to do with the information that she has. System two allows you to do a lot more, but it also takes time to mature. And this system is human specific. So mm-hmm. no other animal possesses it. And this system is dependent on culture and on language. There's also some cultural variation and quite a bit of inter-individual differences when it mm-hmm. comes to the question of when system two really matures. 
it also matures across time. So there's a protracted development that we see of this system in humans. And what a system two allows you to do is not just to sort of track what other people registered or what objects they encountered, but it allows you to understand that somebody might actually misrepresent or misidentify an object, that he might mistake one thing for another, or that he might think that a particular object is something else. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, that he might fail to recognize that an object is actually identical with itself rather than that there's two different objects out there. So um, I, I didn't describe that very clearly, but so um, system two basically is responsible for understanding that somebody might be fooled by an illusion or by something that has a deceptive appearance. For example, mm -hmm. a, a stick insect, you know, might look just like a stick to somebody, even though the child knows it's it's in reality an insect or something of that nature. Or they might now be able to understand that what Maxi takes to be um, his, oh, I don't know how to explain that very well. Um, basically, it has to do with identity relation. Mm -hmm. So understanding, for example, that this is uh, Mrs. Miller, but Mrs. Miller is also your sister's teacher. And those two entities are actually, that's one and the same entity right. that comes under different descriptions. Right. Okay, I see. So, for example, being able to understand that Superman is Clark Kent and Clark Kent is Superman and understanding that somebody else might not know that and that somebody else in the street when encountering Clark Kent would not know that he or she encountered Superman. Understanding that is a part of what System 2 would allow you to do. Mm, I see. Yeah, mm -hmm. that is definitely a more sophisticated uh, way of thinking compared to System 1. Mm -hmm. And um is there like a timeline for these two systems of thinking? I suppose system two would appear not um, when the child is first born, right? It comes later in life. Right. Yeah. System one is allegedly there right at birth. Mm -hmm. um, it is phylogenetically old, as I mentioned. It's shared with these animals and mm -hmm. young infants already have it. And what I would criticize is that there is really no sort of room for development of various capacities that would fall under this first system. Um, everything is sort of there right out of the gate. So mm -hmm. there are no steps of development within the realm of capacities that fall under system one. And I think that's inaccurate because we see that quite a bit develops between ages one, two, and three all the different mm. theory, theory of mind capacities that we have and that precede that important threshold that we reach at four. And then system two is supposed to develop at around the age of four. And it also explains why we then are able to solve the standard false belief tasks that we mentioned earlier and other similar tasks that also fall under the umbrella of a theory of mind. Mm, of I see like understanding the difference between appearance and reality, understanding identity relations, and also a visual perspective taking. So understanding, for example, that what 
um, is to my left is to your right. If you look at the scene from the opposite angle mm -hmm. or understanding that something that is right side up for me looks upside down to you from where you're like looking at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very mm -hmm. interesting. Thank you for the clarification. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then um, I also wanted to ask, um, so in the beginning, you mentioned there are two major projects that the lab is working on. Uh, I'm curious, um, what are the future directions that you have in mind for the lab? Any projects coming up? Yeah, thank you for the question. So regarding the scope and limits of theory of mind understanding, we will keep using expression studies. So studying children's facial and bodily expressions to learn more about what kinds of belief involving situations a two-year-old and a three-year-old understands mm -hmm. and what kinds of situations they do not yet understand, just to get a better understanding of what is and is not within the limits of what a toddler can grasp regarding other people's mental states. Um, in other lines of work, we're also um, taking a closer look at young children's understanding of teaching, what is the aim of teaching according to a young child, and what's the process of teaching look like. So here we're really interested in gaining a better understanding of children in the role of not just learners, but also in the role of teachers. Mm -hmm. This has to do with this interesting uh, and very active field of cultural evolution. So the idea that we don't just uh, pass on our genes, but we also pass on culture and how does it work and what do teaching and other social learning mechanisms, what role do they play in that process? We believe that it's important to look at the learners more specifically and see what kinds of cognitive capacities they have that allow them to really benefit from being taught and being engaged in pedagogy with others. So that's mm -hmm. something that hasn't yet sufficiently been looked at. So children usually have been studied in the role just of learners, but not in the role of agents who actually cognize the act of teaching or have some grasp of what they're doing when, when they are being taught by others. Mm -hmm. And lastly, something I haven't yet mentioned is children's uh, help-seeking behavior. So we've become really interested in children's use of help-seeking as a strategy mm -hmm. in the context of problem-solving in order to basically promote their own learning. So help-seeking was long, for a long time, looked down upon in a sense because it seemed to indicate a lack of competence mm -hmm. and perhaps form of helplessness. Mm -hmm. You just run to another person to ask them basically to help you out. However, we find that help seeking is a really productive and clever skill that kids use in order to advance their own learning and their own cognitive growth. We try to link this up with Vygotsky's main idea of the zone of proximal development. So this is the kind of distance that a child goes between what she can accomplish on her own, or it's the gap between what she can accomplish on her own and what she can accomplish under somebody else's assistance. Mm -hmm. and what we think is that children actually have a sense of that gap and of that distance, and that they themselves want to travel that distance with another person's help 
And that is why they turn to other people and request their help in order to be able to make the next learning steps that they have to take in order to grow cognitively. Mm-hmm. So here, help-seeking in our model is basically seen as a form of intelligence, a social intelligence that the child has because she understands that she needs to rely on other people in order to advance her learning. I see. I was just wondering, when a child reaches out for help, does she um, understand that the the people she's reaching out for help could hold totally different beliefs? And does she have some sort of criteria who to reach out to? Uh, maybe she knows, oh, dad has a different perspective on this. Dad doesn't like this. Maybe I shouldn't ask dad for help. Do you think that's uh, taken into consideration in a child's mind? Yeah, I think it's a really good idea to bring the theory of mind understanding that we just previously talked about Mm -hmm. into this discussion and try to sort of uncover the nexus between help seeking and theory of mind in young children. And what's most relevant here is the fact that the child, or it's not necessarily a fact, it's something that we actually hope to establish. The idea that the child understands that the other people she's reaching out to are cognitively advanced relative to themselves. That the other is already at a point of learning that goes beyond what the child can do and that therefore Mm -hmm. this is the right person to reach out to because she possesses knowledge that I do not yet have, Mm -hmm. but that I can acquire through her in collaboration with her. And I think that that's um, a sense that children have, that they have this awareness that um, in particular, in adults mm-hmm. um, have, have a form of understanding that they are lacking, but that they need in order mm-hmm. to propel their learning and advance. Do you think that's kind of an intuitive understanding that children have without uh, being able to, you know, have a checklist and see, okay, they understand uh, they're better doing this than me? Uh, is that natural in a way? Yes, I think it's both natural and also based uh, on the experience. I think there is a general tendency to seek knowledge from adults rather than, say, another baby, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't really see that young kids turn to people who are cognitively less mature than they themselves are in order to acquire knowledge. So I think that there is an intuitive understanding of that there from the start in a way. But then through experience, young children additionally learn who might be an expert at something, who might be particularly good at something, and then turn to these people in order to basically have them share the knowledge that they themselves lack. So they do become relatively selective in Mm -hmm. who they ask uh, for help. But this is a learning process, and that depends, of course, on witnessing other people act and witnessing their competence and their skill level and so on. I see. Mm -hmm. That is really amazing how how much young children can do and how good they're at uh, reading other people's minds. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And something that we're trying to promote is the idea of young children as what we call self-conscious learners. Mm -hmm. What we mean by that is that Young children know of themselves that they are 
learners, that they have the status of learners, and that one of the main tasks in their young lives is to learn and to learn from other people. So social learning is just really the form that learning takes in the case of humans. So I think almost all learning in humans is social. And Mm -hmm. we propose the idea that young children have a sense of that, that they know that they are social learners. And that is why they turn to others for help, especially in kind of problem solving contexts when they are encountering their own limits. So when they encounter their own limits, they know to turn to other people to go beyond what they can currently do and learn more. Mm -hmm. Right. I think uh, that's definitely a really good quality and self-awareness to have as young children because I've noticed that when we become adults, sometimes we kind of lose that label as learners. We're just like, okay, we're yeah. done with school. We're going to live our life. And we kind of stop learning. We stop being so curious and wonder things. So maybe that's a uh, something we should all get back as adults and learn from children. <laughs> I think that's a good motto. Yeah. Yeah. Lifelong learning is, is definitely uh, something that we would want to do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, learning is is a lifelong process for sure. And yeah, young children have a sense of that, I think. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And thank you so much for um, the discussion. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, all these questions that you brought up and uh, learning about your project. It's really interesting. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And uh, we will stay tuned for your new papers coming out. Thank you, Bella. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode, or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use for podcasts so that more people can find us. Thank you so much.